do some more things, so that'd be great. But we uh, were looking for a guest speaker to come, and uh, a friend of ours recommended this guy that I didn't know to come and be with us. He did, and now here we are, 34, 35 years later, able to have him come back to this church, for which I'm grateful. Dr. Fred Cinelli, uh, he is uh, a smart guy. way smarter than you, way better than you in so many ways. Well, that's kind of him. But the thing that sets him apart, I'll, I'll just kind of lay the groundwork for you. The thing that is the best about him is he's been married now for 45, 46 years? 46 years. He has three kids, but the best thing is he has still just six kids, six grandkids? Okay, you had to think for a minute, Fred. That's yeah. Bad. He has yes, six was. grandkids, so he would fit in well here. When you've got kids and you have grandkids, that's who we're about. Um, this particular month, the month of April, we are pressing for the Lord to bring healing in our souls to set us freer than we've ever been. Uh, we get saved, and we think that means we're on this love boat called uh, a cruise ship, and we're going to have smooth sailing. But the truth is, we've still got stuff. We've got issues in our lives. God is regularly setting us freer than we've ever been before. And so we have been praying ahead of time and believing God to use this month help us to find his heart towards us in a greater way. So we've asked Dr. Antonelli to come and to speak to us on the battle that goes on in our minds. Because for most of us, the battle isn't really out there. When David said, let God arise and his enemies be scattered, if you go back and you look at the context, he was not talking about the Philistines, he was not talking about the Malachites, or any of those other termites that were out in the land. He was talking about the enemies that were in his own soul. The things that were contrary to God's best for him. And we believe that God wants to do the same for us. He wants to set us free. So, we're going to ask Brother uh, Dr. Fred Antonelli to come and to bring a word to us that's going to help us move farther along on our path towards greater freedom in the Lord. So, Fred, would you come and would you welcome him in the name of the Lord? my gosh, your pastor gets so many, many, many things right in life. Uh, but he got that wrong. I'm about as smart as a stump, I can tell you that. <clears throat> yeah, I'm not. Uh, matter of fact, um, you know, people could... <laughs> my family is the first one that's quite surprised, my extended family, that I got a PhD. But, uh, um, you know, it's, it was hard work because uh, I'm not smart. <laughs> it takes a lot of work. You know, PhD without Jesus stands for post-told liquor going nowhere, right? And you're just going to... So your pastor's the smart one. Everybody's kind of intimidated around him because he knows all the scriptures. You know, you got to make sure you're all... You are all you got it together when you're around him. How many know that's the case with Jesus' pastor? He's a blessing here in Karen. They're so well-respected with Elam and they're such a... Just a great, great couple. You're blessed to have such quality pastors. Um, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. That's... that's that's the truth. Um, so I want to talk with you today about uh, the topic, I believe, is the battle of the mind. By the way, just, you know, the five-second version is I went to Elam as well, and I've been with Elam since 1970-whatever, four. We're ancient mariners now, and I'm on the board of directors of the Elam Bible Institute and College. Uh, I have Life Counseling Center with offices throughout the eastern shore of Maryland and Delaware, and I'm executive director of Agape Christian Counseling um, in Rochester. So uh, just a little background of what I do. I pastored also for 23 years, so I served my time, all right? 
Um, I have a book out. And there it is. It all came out in just one moment. I have a book out <clears throat> called Struggling Well. Uh, it's published through uh, Crosslink Publishing. I've never been published before. Um, I've always had self-published, free to be you, and it was my first book. I've written articles for like Relevant and, Christ and ChristianLeaders.com and CP and all those things, but I've never been published before, and there's probably a good reason for that. <laughs> I don't know, you know. First book I ever wrote, I was pastoring in a, a little place called Laurel, Delaware, and uh, I wrote a book, and um, this was probably back in 85, and anyway, I, I gave it to every Christian publisher that I knew of, and I was turned down by every Christian publisher that I knew of. So uh, this one was picked up by the grace of God, and so it's just kind of interesting. I've been able to do some book signings to go across the country and do some speaking where I've not been able to do before. It's on ChristianBook.com, and uh, it's distributed through um, Ingram, and it's on you know Barnes and Noble and Target and all those different places. So it's this one's done really good, pretty good, but it's about <clears throat> the reason I wrote it was because of the struggles we go through, or the battle, as the pastor said, that we go through as believers in Christ. Uh, and we all go through battles. We all go through struggles. We don't like to think we do, but we do. Sometimes we really know we do. So what I did was, this book came out in October. We're still doing some, um, some publicity for it. Uh, we're going, I think, West Coast and East Coast now. Uh, no, Midwest and West Coast, we're doing some things. The book opened up a lot of opportunities for me. Back in, just to give you a little synopsis of it, back in 2009, a guy named Ed Gunger um, came and talked to me. He was a senior pastor of Sanctuary Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He wanted to take a look at our practice. By the way, Pastor, how much time do I have? Yeah, I don't ever say that to a preacher. I'll get you out of here. I normally speak about 25 minutes, but Pastor said I could go a couple hours, so we'll do that. <laughs> no, I'll get you out of here. Um, Ed Gunger uh, was... Um, you pastor one of those kind of mega churches. By the way, I got to say this: I speak in a lot of churches, smaller churches, large churches. I speak anything from you know smaller churches, smaller than this, to eight, ten thousand people churches. I've never heard a worship band so good. I'm serious. That was awesome. Where are you at, drummer Keith? God, whatever your name is. Did he leave already? Hey, bro. That's I'm, I've played drums since I was five years old. If you get back there, you just go. Then you just went. That was awesome. This is a and because not just of the, uh, the the quality of your worship and and the singing and all that, it's the quality of the words, the songs. You know, words are all kind of being feminized today in worship, and and uh, it's you know you got 13, 14 verses, and it's like you're at a concert. You walk away from this, and you just you can remember the words, and the Holy Spirit is seeping in you, and you just kind of take it with you. You know, woo! So I really like that. So back in 2009, so Ed came <clears throat> from Tulsa, wanted to find out about our practice, take it back to his fellowship of churches so we could begin to minister and do some IOPs, intensive outpatients with their pastors and stuff. So he came and we were talking. Uh, he, by the way, he was the author. Have you ever heard of, uh, remember the book The Secret? It's kind of a hokey little thing. Oprah had it on her show and you kind of thought maybe it was Christian, but it wasn't. It was kind of new agey. Well, <clears throat> they had commissioned Ed Gunger to write a uh, sequel to that or an answer to it that there's more to The Secret. And Zondervan did that, and it hit New York Times bestselling list, and it stayed up there for like eight, eight nine months. So uh, it was a really, really good book. And so Ed was a great guy, great, a very, very smart fella, great literary guy. And we talked about, uh, went to dinner, you know, he was there over the weekend at our, at our place in Easton, Maryland, and uh, we just talked about stuff. We talked about how it, it's difficult for Christians 
to talk about some of the things they go through in the church. <clears throat> if they're depressed or if they're discouraged or if they have addictions or if they have trauma or if they're weary or something like that because if they talk about it, then sometimes then maybe people think that you're not what you're supposed to be. You know, you're not strong enough, you're not Christian enough, you don't really move in the spirit enough, you know, you just kind of whisper those things like Nicodemus just kind of whisper. But we go through them anyway. And how we in the evangelical church or the slash charismatic Pentecostal charismatic church have a tendency with that Arminian thing going on to just kind of just not say a whole lot because we've got to reach a certain plateau. And if we don't reach that certain plateau, then we're a little less than. I love those words of that grace you had there in that song. So we began this conversation. I'll never forget something Ed told me. He, he made this statement when we were eating. He said, Fred, you know, every one of us struggle, both leadership and sheep. We all struggle alike. But what we need to know is that we can struggle well in the battle. Well, see, I'm the kind of preacher, I don't know about Pastor Chris, I'm the kind of preacher, I cannot build a sermon until I have a title. I must have a title. Other pastors build all the information. They pull their title out of the information that they have. It's probably my ADD. I don't know what it is, but I have to have a title before I move on. So I said, Ed, that's great. Struggling well, man, I, can I have that? He said, sure, it's yours. Take it with you. It's yours. I can I have it for free? He said, yeah, you can have it for free. And so uh, I built that, and I started in 2009 to write the book on a lot of information that I had. Uh, regarding people moving from the pastorate into the clinical side, the clinical Christian, or clinical aspect from a clinical Christian perspective. And, and I also went through my same stuff. I went through stuff myself, like all of us do. So the book kind of came from uh, three sources. Number one, the book came from 23 years as a senior pastor and all the stuff that goes with that. The loneliest man in town is really not the Maytag repairman. It's your local pastor. <clears throat> Remember that. Stuff, stuff, stuff. Stuff goes on in a person's life. So it's 23 years of that, 21 years as a licensed mental health professional in my own stuff. And I have my own stuff, a couple of my own kids. And so it was very, very painful. So from those three, that equaled 44 years. And that's where struggling well came from. It is a battle. We all go through a battle every single day. We wish that we could do some kind of a Jedi mind trick. It's all gone, but it isn't how it works. If there were pills to be able to take it away and we're all good, I'd pop the first one and I'd be giving them all to you today. But we can't escape them because we're not supposed to. It's not that God's a sadist. It's that we go through stuff and that stuff does something to us that we would never... Who would order up the stuff that goes on in our lives sometimes? We, we have to be crazy. God, order me up a little depression today, would you please? Haven't been depressed in about nine months. I'd love to be depressed today. Give me some anxiety, God. That anxiety is what I really need because it can kind of jive me up. Who does that kind of stuff? We don't want to order that up, but it comes to us anyway. So, okay, so who are the strugglers? Who are the ones that battle throughout the course of the day, throughout the course of the weeks and months and years? Who are those people? Well, I'm going to tell you who they are. They're the lovers of Jesus. They're every one of us who stand and fall at the same time. Those who are weak and strong, those who are spiritually weary, fallen, broken, victorious, and defeated. There are those who are confident and fearful. There are those who are fearful and faithless. Faithful, stable, unsteady. We're the ones who get it right. We're the ones who get it wrong. We believe and we doubt. We hope. We're discouraged. We trust. We have questions. We're suspicious. We love very well, and we find it very hard to love. We're certain about things, and we're a bundle of paradoxes. That's who we are. 
where the people of God, where all of those kind of things, where the glorious crippled church of Jesus, all of us, yet because of what he's done for us, what Christ has done, all of the agape love, this endless sacrificial love, this grace, this mercy that he's given to us on the cross, all of the stuff that goes on in our lives, still through all of that, the ups and the downs, the rights and the wrongs, we're approved, here it is, we're approved and we're loved and we're accepted and we're redeemed despite the struggles and battles that we go through. So God only loves me when I'm good. God only loves me when I'm worshiping well. God only loves me when there's no sin in my life. God only loves me when I'm not thinking crazy thoughts. God loves me when I'm doing the right thing and I'm standing and I'm successful. That's when God really loves me. No! He loves you just as much when you're any of the other things than when you're on the mountaintop. And if he doesn't, then we're serving the wrong God because that's not what the Bible says. He paid a massive price for us to be able to move in these areas of weakness and battle that we go through. So we do these things because we're the same people who have fixed our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we want to do that, and at the same time we struggle. Why? Because we're suspended, brothers and sisters, between two worlds. All of us are. We're suspended between the world of believing and trusting, and we're suspended between the world of battling and sorrow. All at the same time making up this cascade called life. How many have ever been discouraged? How many have ever made a mistake? If you don't raise your hand, I'm going to have you pray for me. I can tell you that. How many have ever fallen short? You don't have to lift your hands. How many have ever fallen short and thought, God, you, there's a problem. You must, you must really have a problem. Listen to this. God does not think about us the way that we think about us. He does not feel toward me the way that I feel toward me. And as soon as we get that, we can understand the heart and the agape of Jesus, regardless of what I do. That's not a license to sin, but nor is it a disqualification from his endless love either. So, here's the thing. Let me talk about the fall, the big fall. Here's where everything happened in that moment. This is what happened to each and every one of us. We are the recipients of it now and until Jesus comes or we die, one or the other. And it's found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. It says this, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. Boom! At whatever point they felt ashamed of how they looked, in that moment, man fell apart completely. It was not that way with Adam and Eve. There was no sin. There was none of these crazy thoughts. There was no perversion. It was junk. And they were perfect people. So at whatever point, they went, oh my gosh, this is, this is bad. Sin entered into them, and man fell apart in six very specific ways. At that point to today until the end of time, either, as I said, Jesus comes or we close our eyes in death. We fell apart six ways, and here's how we fell apart. Number one, all of his creation. Something happened physically, number one. Hey, look, I'm not 18 years old anymore. I got plantar fasciitis, whatever the heck that thing's called. And my foot, I just got it. You know, I, I try to do some walking. We do bike riding and stuff. It hurts. I got a 
titanium hip. I'm the original hippie around my house. So I got this thing, and I'm thinking, what the heck? I got that about eight years ago. And, you know, I used to be spry and all this stuff. I'm not 20 years old anymore. I can't do the things that I, I used to do when I was 20 years old. I like my brain saying, you can do it. My body's saying, that's a lie. Don't believe your brain. You know, you can tuck it. You can cut it. You can stretch it. You can get it in the shape. You can do anything you want. You can color it. You can lose it. You can gain it. At the end of the day, gravity will get you. I promise. See, young people are going, well, I'm pretty tight. Everything's good now. (laughs) Stay tuned. (laughs) Or women, just have a kid or two, all right? So physically, we fall apart. Physiologically, we fall apart. Biology falls apart. We get diseases. Things happen. We get cancers. Stuff that take us out. It's very sad. Our body became corrupted as a result of Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Something happened to us physiologically where, where we have now hospitals and all of the pharmacies are building all these pharmacies and hospitals. Why? Why are they all popping up? For us baby boomers, that's why. We're the people that, you know, we're like Peter Pan. We never get old. That's what this says, and the body says, oh, you're getting there, brother. <laughs> All I know is I'm closer to the day of my salvation than I was the day before, right? So physiologically, it happens. Emotionally, we all have certain temperaments. Some people like to talk a lot. Some people don't like to talk a lot. Some people like to express their emotions. Uh, other times, you like, like a dentist, you're trying to pull emotions out of people. You're doing everything, you know, sometimes you, 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 some people are very docile, other people are very aggressive and angry. We all have different emotions. You're something like your mother and your father and your grandparents, you don't want to think it, but it's genetics. We can't help it. Jesus can help us with a lot of that stuff, but physiologically, pardon me, emotionally, we kind of fell apart as well. And then there is the uh, psychological. Oh, here we go. <laughs> sometimes we have disorders. That's what they call them, you know, a licensed psychologist so okay sometimes we have disorders not me i'm washed in the blood of the lamb there ain't one of those things on me i'll tell you that sometimes you ever, don't raise your hands ever been anxious ever had a panic attack people who get you shouldn't have a panic attack forget all that anxiety man you're on the victory side oh i'm telling you what you need more of the word you need my, you know, evidently you've not had a panic attack the real anxiety if you wake up in the middle of the night, you know, because those bills aren't being paid or something's wrong with your kid or something's going on in life and you just kind of panic or maybe there's a disorder in your life. Maybe, the, there's a, uh, uh, maybe there's a mood disorder. Maybe you have some real highs and lows. Maybe there's some sociopathic stuff going on. You can't empathize. Oh, you're crying. I don't know why you're crying. I'm going to continue to do it anyway. I mean, we all have some kind of disorder. There's something. We're all messed up. Blame it on Adam. Chapter 3, verse 7. We have something. Some people hardly have anything. Those are the people I want to hurt. (laughs) Neurologically, we fell apart. Number five. We have these things called neuropathways. They build build patterns in our lives. You get up in the morning, you do a certain thing, you put your slippers on, maybe you go and put your robe, you brush your teeth, you get a cup of coffee, whatever. You have this certain pattern that you do. You go to work the same way, you don't go to work another way. I got to go to work that way. I can't go any other way. That's obsessive compulsive disorder. No, I'm only kidding. (laughs) I got to do certain things. And and, and we build these little things up. We have 
uh, patterns, patternizing. You know, I pay my bills a certain way. I, I say things a certain way. I respond certain ways. Um, and then they can, the pathways can get kind of dangerous, you know. I keep saying the same thing, and I'm hurting you, and I really don't care about hurting you. Or I keep doing the same thing, and now it's bothering me. Now it's building into an addiction. It could be a, alcohol. It could be pornography. It could be eating. It could be spending. It could be gambling. It could be whatever the thing is. So sometimes these neuropathways can be challenging, and brain, the brain in and of itself is, is challenging. You know, it, it, it has its own set of issues, trust me. And then finally, there is the spiritual, the broken relationship that we have in God. So we fall apart physically, physiologically, emotionally, psychologically, neurologically, and spiritually. It happened then, and it has not stopped happening from this day. It just messed us up. You can't help it. You're messed up. You're saved. You know a beautiful, wonderful, redemptive Savior. But don't tell me you're not messed up. We all have a little something. And it's the thing that we don't talk about sometimes. It's the thing that goes on in the house, but we don't want to let it out. Because if we let it out, then somebody might know. Shh, shh, don't damn. It's like my kid. I don't know if we were pastoring in North Carolina and uh, you know, Stephen was just a little guy. I'm going to the bank, make a deposit, whatever the case. It's around Christmas time. And the, and the little uh, the teller said, hey, how you doing there, little fella? Here's a sucker, a sucker for you. Is Santa Claus going to come to your house? And Stephen said, no, my mom and dad told me there is no Santa Claus. So I said, yeah, yeah. That, that, and, she, and the woman just kind of looked at me and went, <laughs> like, you, you terrible person, you. It's not me. He's delusional. <laughs> he was born that way. <laughs> Jesus knew all about this. He understands because he empathizes. He gets it. He, empathizes. he identifies with our weaknesses because he went through these weaknesses. He understands what you're thinking, what you go through. You're, you're hurting. He, he, he gets the whole thing because he systemically understands the complete collapse of humanity in chapter 3, verse 7 of Genesis. He understands it. He gets our condition. And it tells us so in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, because it says, For we don't have a high priest, that's Jesus, who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, and we all have them. He's not able to not understand that because he gets the fact of what we go through. But one instead who has been tempted in every single way, yet he did not sin. So he went through it. He understood it. He knows about, about sadness because he experienced it himself. He knows about questioning. He understands temptation. He understands uh, um, uh, discouragements and sorrow and anxiety and depression and pain and rejection. He understands trauma. There are people who have been through trauma in their lives. And God gets it. Jesus gets it. He was traumatized. Tried going through all that he went through, in particular, the cross, and leading up to it, and see if there's not any trauma involved in that. He gets your pain and your shortcomings because he experienced them, he felt them, he went through them, yet he did not sin. So therefore... We're able to lean on him. That's the reason I put some of the words in the, in the book. I'm going, to be having, I'm, I'm going to be out there selling some books if you care to. They're 10 bucks, And um, I'd be glad to sign them if you care. In my book, that's the reason I put words like grace and legalism. 
God's acceptance, pharisaic mentality, forgiveness, agape love, struggling hope, brokenness, scars, redemption. I have a, uh, have a title, one of the ch- chapters in the book is called um, When Scars Are Your Friend. All of us have scars to some degree. We've been through stuff, haven't we? And yet we don't talk about it or we dare not talk about it because some of it is so extremely painful that we dare not. But yet, and there are other scars and mistakes that we've made that we wish we could redo in the clock and go backwards, but we can't. So how can we prosper from those? We can actually prosper through the things that the enemy has meant for bad for us. Uh, case in point is, I, I talked about, I have about a big long scar right here on my arm. When I was uh, five years old, uh, six years old, first grade, six years old, my brother and I were playing ball. I lived in a row home in Baltimore City. So we were, we were just playing, you know, a, a hardball in the living room of a row home. The ball goes through the storm door, the glass rips apart. And I, ooh, that was bad because my mom was upstairs. But I noticed the ball on the other side of the door. So being the very bright, intelligent six-year-old that I was, I reached right through the glass to pick up the ball, and it ripped me right in my arm. I was traumatized. Crazy stuff. I'm bleeding all over the place, screaming like a banshee. I, I mean, I'm literally, it's a, it's a big, deep scar, and, and, and I'm, I'm going nuts. My mom is running down the steps. I mean, running down the steps, screaming like I am, trying to put something around my arm and go to the doctor. Instead of suturing me, he clamps me, puts clamps on it. As a result of that, I got this big Popeye scar. He just wasn't a good, uh, you know, talking to physicians later, he said, that was one lazy doctor. Just clamped it up, didn't, you know, go. Now, you might say, Thing. It healed up, you know, stuff went on, no more scar. I mean, it got the scar, but no more pain. You might think, so what's the big deal about this? To this day, every time I ride down the road in one of those panel trucks with the glass on the side, I'm very, very careful. Got to get back, get around that car. Or when the kids were small and they bust panes out, I'd put my leather gloves on, man, do it real good. Just really gentle, take it out really knowing what I'm doing. Why? Because I remember the scar. I don't want to repeat the thing that happened to me. My scar became my friend. I don't have to do the repeat. So when something happens to us, it doesn't mean that we're disqualified or it's not going to work. What it means is I just learned something that I don't want to do again. So The struggling or the battling mind of man, brothers and sisters, is as old as Adam and as recent as every single morning you get up to face the day. Job himself made this statement uh, in uh, in the seventh chapter. He says, is not all human life a struggle, a battle in our minds that we go through every day that tries to capture us? We sometimes feel schizophrenic, you know? I love God, I do good things, I do bad things, I don't know about that. Oh, I was, I was really on the victory side, this is really great. Now, look, my kid's driving me nuts. Oh, my God, help me. And we're all up and down and everything's sideways and we think, you know, this is like a schizophrenic world. It's not pleasant sometimes. I mean, what, you know, it would be nice if we could all stay here throughout the course of the week, have the worship band come in and we just go, oh, hallelujah, and just sing the praises of this is great, God. I just want to self-medicate on this. This is wonderful. I don't want to leave. I just want to stay here with my brothers and sisters. 
Well, at some point, you'll get tired of them too <laughs> because they have issues. <laughs> and you have issues. And every, all God's people got issues. All of us do. So you'll be in here and why, you know, I want you to sit with you. The worship team just keeps playing that same song. Get another song there. Just go someplace else with it, you know. That's too bad. The drummer's too loud. The guitar, put the guitar down. You just stay enough of, you know, you go, oh, you know. We have it every single day. The question isn't whether we struggle in life because we do. Every single one of us struggle. We have this battle. The real question is, why do we struggle? And if you want to find that out, sometimes we really need to find out why I struggle, in particular if it's repeating itself a lot. And when I struggle, is it possible to struggle well and God be okay with that? Not that it is a license for me to struggle, but because of Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, I'm screwed up. And the only person that can help me with that is God through Christ our Lord. And if I beat myself up and I've constantly got to be at this high watermark, then I am doing myself no justice, not being true to the scripture, and not acknowledging that I am a human being. I'm not a spiritual being. I can't like translate and go places. I'm a human being. I falter. I have stuff that's wrong with me. I serve a, a spiritual God and the Holy Spirit enters me. I have this spiritual longing. All human beings do. But I'm not a spirit person. I'm a human being and I'm corrupted at that. So Ephesians 6 tells us what? We wrestle not against. My problem isn't with you. My problem is, it, the scripture says it's in the principalities of, of, of darkness and, and the rulers and, and all of the stuff that goes on in my life. My problem isn't with you. So when a husband and wife are arguing with one another, they're going, you're the problem. Stop this. Don't do that. Pull that lever and push that button and I'll be fine. And she says, isn't that amazing? I was thinking the same thing about you. And you're not doing it. Then you become the irresistible force against the immovable object. Maybe two hardheads. You may be strong-willed. I'm not strong-willed. He is. Well, that's, she's a strong-willed. And I'm not strong-willed. I'm the one that capitulates to everything. That's not the way that I see it. You see, because we're all messed up. You're, oh, don't ever do that. You remind me of your mother. You want to sleep by yourself for a while? <laughs> Don't ever say that. I've never said it, but my, my, mother, my wife's mother was cool. Uh, or you remind me of your father. Luke, I'm your father. Yeah, because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes our fathers are not good people. Sometimes they're awesome. You know, I didn't, you know, Pastor and I were comparing notes about our dads. <clears throat> so there are two Look at this. I'm going to try to make this simple. And it is simple. The Bible is broken down into two sections. Your pastor can talk with you about all the theology and the doctrine and all this kind of stuff because he's very, very good at it. But I just want to share with you two things. The Bible is broken up into two sections, and you know all about it. The first one is the Old Testament, and it's the legalistic theology. It's the, it's the law, the do's and the don'ts and the can's and the can'ts and your wills and your won'ts and you should and you should not. It's this high water mark that says you must reach this thing all the time, and if you don't reach it, you're just not a good Christian. You need to pray more. I mean, I remember when I was at Elam, it was in 1974, and I, I didn't really do the thing right. I didn't sell my house before I, I went to Elam. My wife and I were only married, you know, about less than two years. And, and I'm thinking, I'm just going to go to Elam, and God's going to take care of it all. So I didn't sell my house. We had to sell it when I was there, and things were really, you know, really messed up. 
And um, uh, I remember thinking, God, you know, life is really bad, and I'm only 24 years old. It feels like everything's falling apart because I didn't take care of stuff. I didn't do some things that I needed to do. But then again, I, I, I felt like I had to pray. I had to trust God. I needed some help. I needed some counsel. But there wasn't any counselors then. There wasn't any mental health therapists. There weren't any Christian counselors. Maybe Larry Crabb out there someplace or Dr. Dobson. You know, here's what I got. Read more of the Word. Go to more services. Get down and pray more. Trust God. You need to fast. You're not doing enough of this. Just keep doing more and more and more, which in and of itself is not a bad thing at all. But I kept saying, I'm doing all of that, and it's not happening. So I thought God had a problem with me. I must be bad. I'm doing all the right stuff, but nothing's happening to me. I need help. I mean, yeah, I need money so I can get out of this, this thing I got myself in, but I need to just counsel someone to talk with me. There's nobody there. But I couldn't really talk about it because the more I talked about it, there were people who said, you're just, you just need to press in more. Press in. Man, if I pressed in any more, I'd be like this. I'd just, you know, I'd be crammed. So the Old Testament is saying, got to get it right. You don't get it right, do it more. Stack up more. And God understood that. He set laws. There was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. There was the Ten Commandments. There's a lot of things that we prosper from. But I couldn't stay up to that level. None of us can stay up to that level. It's impossible because of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7. We fell apart. And God said, you've got to get this right because if you don't get it right, you're going to keep thinking that you have to do these things. And if you don't do them, you're not going to be a really good Christian. And so then there was the New Testament. New Testament. Grace, not legalism, but grace through Jesus. And grace is a heart that leads us and loves us. It is a sacrificial, agape type of emphasis that is not of human origin. We love conditionally. I'll love you. That's great. You love me? I love you. Well, you did this thing to me, and now I'm really upset at you. And you got to, you know, if you forgive me, I've forgiven you, but I'm forgiving you like this. I forgive you over here, but I got my own over here. And the more that you keep doing things and doing them right, I'll eventually open this thing. We'll welcome you. That isn't how God operates. God, I've messed up. I've screwed up. I'm so sorry. It's the 10,000th time. God, I don't even get it. God, help me. Forgive me. Boom. It is finished. He said, I've forgiven you. God, I don't stop your feelings. I have, you've got to understand, Fred, that you don't have to stack up. It's all about you moving in me and realizing your sin and longing for me to take you to that place that you experience my endless love and agape and mercy and grace that you're going to be doing this less. I'm not penalizing you as a result of this. No, it's not good and it's not healthy, but I'm not here like the Old Testament to beat you to a place where you do it right. You see, God wants to lead us to a place of righteousness, not beat us to a place of righteousness. God, instead of pounding us to a place of righteousness, he pardons us on this road and this journey to a place that we are with him. 
And if not, then we got to keep doing the stuff that makes us righteous. You don't have a righteous bone in your body. You don't see no halo on my head. We are not righteous people. We are fallen in six areas, and we are so screwed up. But we serve a God who is able to do exceedingly abundant beyond all that we could possibly ask or even think. And as I link with him, and I am in him, and he is in me, Christ in you, the hope of glory, things begin to transpire, and my life is revolutionized, even though it might not be going exactly the way I want it. I can't try to be conscious of the time. So I'm going to talk with you just for a moment here about Paul in Romans chapter 7. So in Romans chapter 7, Paul is talking about the Christian life and and how we actually are supposed to experience it because really um, we're all just trying to to balance our holiness with our humanity. Can I say that? Balancing our holiness with our humanity. We are human and we know we are to live a holy life, but I don't have the goods to do so. So I need that constant grace and that wonderful mercy that God talks about in so Paul gets it right here. He's going, it's like this trip he's on. It's like this journey. So in verse 16, it says, in chapter 7, he says, um, for, um, for, I'm not, for I'm not practicing what I'd really like to do, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing the very thing that I hate. I'm, you know, have you ever, of course you have. I'm not going to belabor this. I keep doing the wrong thing. God, I don't know why I just keep doing it. <coughs> Teenagers, <coughs> when you're growing up, you get all these hormones going on, all these thoughts, and, oh, I've never had one in my life. That's never happened to me. And so things are just, you know, going on. We're all morphed up or, or you know, people get in trouble and things happen to them or they think stupid thoughts or they, 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 they just feel insecure and things go on in their lives. Um, and, and so all of a sudden you find, I keep doing it. You know, this guy gets on my nerves and, and you know, I try to, I, I don't like him and I, keep, and I yelled at him and, and I don't want to be around him. And you just keep doing the stuff you don't want to do. Oh, you know, I really don't want to buy that item. I told my wife that if it's over $100, I'm going to talk with her about it. It's a $300 item. She'll understand. It must be God. Okay, I got the item, and so she's going to have to understand. Nope. That's not going to go over. I just keep doing the thing that I should. Because Paul understood that. He's coming to grips with his own humanity here. And he's saying in verse 18, now it's coming to him. Something's happened. There's a metamorphosis going on. For I know, he's getting, wait a minute. I know that nothing good dwells in me. That's what it is. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. I want to do the thing, but I don't do it. Nothing good dwells in me. Some people, I get in trouble sometimes with Christians when they say, what do I mean nothing good dwells? Ah, it's Christ in you. It's Christ in you. But he had to come in you because you're messed up. Now, of his love, he wants to redeem us and set us free. So, so, Paul's saying, I'm going to say something right here to you people in Corinth. He's saying, nothing good dwells in you. Nothing at all. Now it's coming to him even more so. Now he's just, he's kind of stirring the whole thing up. Now he's putting it in B for boogie. It's really beginning to move at this point. Verse 21, he says, he says, here's what I'm finding. He said, I find the principle. He said, don't get, don't get angry with me, you know, church of Corinth. I'm finding the principle that evil is present in me. Wait a minute. Evil is not in me. I am redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and no evil shall pierce my mind. Nothing shall 
hover around and orbit around my brain like that, I won't have anything to do with it. You're in denial. And if you don't think men, men are going, uh, some men go, uh, no, no, there's no evil in me. Just ask your wife. Is evil in me, honey? Mm. You're like your father. <laughs> so Paul's getting it. He's going, evil is in me. So he's realizing, he's saying, nothing's good in me. I want to do the right thing. Evil's in me. I'm really getting a problem with this. He said, because the enemy's beating me up. I don't know what that thing he asked God for three times. Lord, get rid of it. I don't know what it is. We say, you know, his eyes are going bad. It was just struggles with the church and all kinds. I've, I've read it all, and it could be. I don't know. I have no idea. But I wonder, if God would say to you, that thing that's in you right now, I'll get rid of it. I'll bet you'll know what it is. Most of you. Like, just let me know. Boom, it's gone. It would be gone in a moment's time. And Paul said, please, God, get rid of this thing. I don't know what it was. He struggling with something? He was a man. He was an apostle. He was human like you. He had anger issues. Just talk about him and Barnabas kind of thing. He, had, he was a strong-willed man. He's probably choleric. He's probably a very strong, um, in, in clinical terms, choleric. Anybody heard? Cleric is a very controlling personality. They're a very strong-willed person. They're also leaders. They're great leaders, and, and we need them. <clears throat> but um, clerics are people in the government, and they're, you know, they got, they're kind of narcissistic and that kind of stuff. Paul was narcissistic. And, and so, but he, the Holy Spirit got a hold of him. He went to the Arabian Desert for three years, which probably wasn't anywhere near enough. But God said, you got to pull him out. So he gets out, and now Paul, Barnabas and him are going through this big deal, and none of the apostles wanted to have anything with Paul because he killed people. And so Paul is getting this, and he's saying, even though I'm a strong, you know, Paul was a, probably a choleric, strong personality. God got a hold of him, the Holy Spirit, and he changed a lot because he loved Jesus, and, he, and his life was taking form. Joseph Stalin was a choleric, too. Hitler was a choleric. So notice the difference, the dichotomy there. It depends on what you do and how you do that with God. So he goes on, and he finally comes to the conclusion. Here's what I've come up with the conclusion. With. Wretched man that I am, who's going to free me from this stuff, this battle that goes through my mind every day? And he gets it. He goes, I got it. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus, my Lord. Why? Because there is the grace. There is the mercy. There is the redemption and the love and the hope. There is the kindness and the gentleness and the goodness and the patience that I need to be able to get through it throughout the course of any given week, month, or year. Whatever that thing is, it's because of those things that have transformed my life. Paul was, was kind of a he was talking to believers here, not unbelievers. It was a typical life. It was his autobiography, the things he was walking through as a, as a struggling person who loved Messiah. Hey, think about it. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, was responsible, personally responsible, for murdering men, women, and children. He lit up Herod's garden with them when they threw their cloaks and his feet, when Stephen was stoned, he goes, I'll take it. I'll get him. He was a zealot, personally responsible for murdering families. Now, but that was the Apostle Paul. And the Spirit of God came upon him there in Arabia. And God erased all of that from his mind. And so he just kind of levitated wherever he went throughout his ministry. 
And God met him and met people, and that never bothered him again. Was he a human being? Was he? Do you think he had problems? I don't know. He's one of the first people I want to talk to when I get to heaven. Hey, Paul, can I talk with you a minute? Get in line. You have about 30 billion people behind you. Paul, what were you going through? Did you have post-traumatic stress when you were asking God, please take this from me, please? Or when you saw a little child, you wondered, I had kids like that killed. When you saw a family, when you saw them together, or a mother or a father, did the enemy ever play with your brain and said, you're a murderer, you're not worth anything. You call yourself a Christian, working the works of God. You're a killer. And they'll never come back to life again because your authority destroyed the families and killed their lives and consequently their history. I don't know what that was, but I believe when Paul was writing chapter 7, he was, this was going through his mind as well. I really do, with all of my heart. Luke 19 talks about how he's come to seek and to save us regardless of the stuff that we carry, the agape love that we have. I'm going to kind of bring it to a close here with Job. I'm going to, uh, I want to paint for you what, what Job's saying here because I believe Job is a winner and not a loser. I believe this is very, very applicable in the struggle and the battle of your mind. <clears throat> Job is a winner. When we think of Job, we just think of all the horrible things that happened to him. And there were terrible things that happened. We all say, oh, my Lord, I feel like Job today. Look at this, chapter 1 and verse 7. It says this, God's holding this dialogue between he and Satan, and God says to Satan, where did you come from? Where were you been? This, I mean, it's not that he didn't know, but he's holding this conversation with him. And the enemy says back to him, from roaming around the earth and walking all on it. Do you know that he has not stopped roaming on the earth and walking all on it? Since Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, he roams and walks in our lives. He roams and walks in our families. He roams and walks with our children. He roams and walks in our finances. He roams and walks with our mental stability and our physical stability. He roams and walks and tries to take us to a place where we feel like we're firmly planted in air. There's nothing underneath of us. We're questioning our faith. We're saying, God, where are you? He roams and he does what he does, steal, kill, destroy, because that's what he does, and he does it to human beings. But aren't you glad that Jesus didn't stop there in John 10.10? Because the enemy does come to steal, kill, and destroy. But anyone on this says, chill, relax. I love you so much. I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. It's in this different realm, though. You're going to go through stuff, but I'm going to be there for you. You're going to find that I am. And so we see here <clears throat> that Job is in a really tough spot. <clears throat> and he doesn't know where he's going and what he's doing because everything is, is, is backwards. And, and yet he is trying to navigate through his life. So struggles happen to each and every single one of us. They happened to Job. They happened to his family. They were, they were nonstop, actually, with him. Um, <clears throat> the thing about it is, say this. I want you to say this to somebody. Turn to somebody and say, God never wastes a sorrow. Would you? 
He never wastes a sorrow. Some of you today have been going through some very, very difficult times in your life. And some of it's very sorrowful, painful, hard, in multiple different ways. God never wastes a a sorrow. He will not lead you that way. The enemy will not have the final word with you, I promise. You can be assured of that. He never, ever wastes a sorrow. Philippians 3 says, this intimate relationship that we may know him in the power of his resurrection, right? And in the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. I love the power of the resurrection. God, just give me the power of the resurrection. Hallelujah. I want the good stuff. I want the powerful stuff. I want to be on the victory side. This is what I want. Ooh, today I want to float. Today I want good things to happen to me. Today I want my, my checking account to just somehow supernaturally get 20,000 bucks in it. Boom, just like that. I want to be able to do, God, I just want your blessings. Give me, give me, give me God. Just if you would do that, then I know you really love me. I tried that. It didn't work. <laughs> The power of his resurrection. Oh, I feel so good. And the fellowship of his suffering. Oh, God, I really, could you just pass that down to this person? I don't like him. You could just kind of give it to him. He deserves it. I don't. Being conformed to his death. And so at the end, Job says this. This is what he says. Okay, guys, chapter 42, he says, I get it now. I didn't get it then. I was a good Jew. I did all the right stuff. I went to the sacrifice. I did everything. I knew the, I just, I, I kept the law. I, I did it. And, and, and I knew of God, and I was very devoted, and I tried to be a righteous man. But now, you see, I heard of you by the hearing of my ears. But now my eyes see you. Why? Because I've been through stuff. There's been a battle, there's been a struggle that's gone on with me, and I never thought that I was going to make it, but now I see you clearer than I have ever seen you before because you're alive inside of me. And that life inside of me has taken a meaning that I would have never have known had I not gone through this because of Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. It's not your fault, God. I'm a human being. You are rescuing me from this stuff. But it takes its toll. Stuff happens. Now, when you see a Christian, you pray for them, and we believe God for, for supernatural healing. Of course we do, and we've seen it. But when people die and things don't quite work out, I don't know why. I'm not God. I just know that God, through all of that, somehow, some way, is going to bring us into a place where we're more intimate and personal with him. If the person dies, and I've known people to do that, it was in the pastorate, of course it hurts. It, it's, it's horrible, horrible and, it's, and, it's, and, it, and it destroys us in some cases. It just causes us to, especially if it's a loved one, a child or something like that. But through that, even God will see us through. It doesn't always go the ways that we would like it to go, but Job, as a result of that, God blessed him twice as much. We have heaven. Do you, you imagine what that's going to be like? And don't tell me you didn't pray it. Jesus, if you could come back today, this would be a good day for you to come back. This is a good day. Don't raise your hands. But point to somebody else. He did it. I didn't. <laughs> we all have. But yet, we have heaven. We have this place that we are. We, Billy Graham just died, uh, 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 you know, what, a month ago or so. I have the pleasure of knowing, uh, Debbie and I have the pleasure of knowing his, one of his daughters, uh, Ruth. And it's amazing. Billy Graham was just one of the most amazing, most humble human beings I've ever 
No, and I didn't know him. I ever heard of him in my life. This is his daughter. And he did get buried in a pine. But he really, he was really that guy. He was a simple guy. And, I, and you know, and, and if you went to a seminar or something in the beginning, people go, this guy can't be no evangelist. He doesn't hardly have anything to offer. Well, he has one string on his guitar. Salvation, 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 salvation. He's got to have, got to do some other stuff. He's led more people to the Lord than anybody in the world. Besides Jesus. <clears throat> so there is this, there is this, I see things like I've never, Why? He said, I see things like I've never seen before. And because of those troubles and those difficulties and those struggles and that battle that I went through, I see things different and I feel things different and I assess things different and I experience relationship with him different and I pray differently and I, empath- I empathize differently and I love and I, and I enter God with a sense of humility because I see and experience in a way that I've never, I'm not going to waste the battle. I'm not going to waste the struggle. Because there is yet life in there. I'll end with this. There are three things you are not. You are not three things. The first thing that you are not is alone. Matthew 28 says, I promise you, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. I'm with you always. But God, I would really appreciate it if you could meet me now because I feel alone. I understand. I'm with you. You're, 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 you're not alone. I promise you, you're going to see, the pastor said, of the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You're going to experience that. I promise you, stay tuned. I am with you and you're going to sense my presence and you're going to see the ramifications of what I do in your life positive ones. Second, you are not forgotten, even though you think you have been. There are some people here today that may be thinking, God, you took a left, I took a right. I don't know, somehow you threw me off the bus. I I don't know what the heck happened. But I I, I feel like I'm forgotten. Isaiah 49 says, see, looky here. I haven't forgotten you. I've carved your name in the palm of my hand. And wherever I go, you go. And wherever you go, I go. And when you weep, I weep with you. When you're in pain, I am in pain with you because I've been there. Hold on. I'm going to see you through. This is this whole systemic problem with human race. But I promise you, there's going to be good that comes out of this. I am for you, and I am not against you. Number three, and finally, you are not hopeless. You are not hopeless. Psalms chapter 42 says, put your hope in God, for he is good. Titus says, he is our blessed hope. Oh, my goodness. He is a wonderful God, even in the midst of sorrow. You know, look, I'll tell you, be honest with you. I came up here, I want to quote a verse from a, a, a hymn, and then I'm going to turn it right over to the pastor. I came up here this week, and and I uh, had to do some stuff for Elam and then Agape. This has been a terrible three days for me, four days. Stuff has happened back at my house, in my practice. Stuff has gone on, uh, you know, in areas where I had to put out all kinds of fires. I, you know, I have had a bloody nose. I couldn't even stop it. I have, you know, issues in my, with my eyes. I was having pain. All this stuff was like nonstop. And then the pastor wants me to talk about, you know, the mind and getting victory over these things and, and some, you know, leaving some kind of a semblance of, of hope. And I'm thinking, God, you know, I'm like a cripple. 
You know, it's like mentally, physically, you know, uh, occupationally right now, things are going, what the heck is this all about? But I've been through this enough to realize that at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, here's at the end of the day, it is not my circumstances that are going to define me. It is not the struggle that's going to define me. It's not the battle of my mind that's going to define me. It's not the pain or the sorrow or the depression or the anxiety or the fear that's going to define me. The only thing that I will allow to define me and the only thing that has the final word is the cross of Jesus Christ. Is the blood that he spilled for me. We are winners. We are not losers. Remember that even when you're going through your difficulty today. So I close with this. The writer says this, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Woo! Hallelujah! His grace that thing that I don't deserve, but he gives it to me anyway. God, I'm a mess up. That's okay. I love you. And I'm going to see you through, Fred. In every high and stormy gale, the anchor holds. Would you say that? The anchor holds. One last time. The anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Would you close your eyes and bow your head and heart with me if you would, please? Father God, <clears throat> we come to you today because we must. Well, because you and you alone are the only one that has the words of life. We have nothing else to offer except our brokenness and our Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 experience. However, with you, God, with you, we live and we move and we have our being. And we will be defined only as per who you say we are in you and nothing and nowhere else. So Lord, I pray for these wonderful people. God, as you minister to them and they begin to pray and look to you and trust you, that you would show them your glory and your grace and let them catch a, a vision of your massive agape for them, this unconditional, wonderful love and this, and this mercy that you spill on each and every one of us that they would know and see and understand that no matter where they go, they are in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.